Ladies and gentlemen, I have some bad news. Meredith was hit by a car. What? what? Oh, yeah. It happened this morning in the parking lot. I took her to the hospital, and the doctors tried to save her life. They did the best that they could, and she is going to be okay. What is wrong with you? Why did you have to phrase it like that? So she's really going to be fine? Yes. She has a slight pelvical fracture, but uh, people have survived far worse. Thank God you were there. Yeah. Did you see who did it? Oh, no need. We can just check the security tapes. Yeah. Kind of a good news, bad news there. I was able to be on the scene so quickly because I was in the car that hit her. Who was driving? Money, 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 money. Money, 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 money. money, money. When we talk about customers, you often have who do you sell to and contract with, but who is the ultimate decision maker? And those are not always the same people. This is one of my favorite things to talk to people about is, just remember, 10 years ago, our business was tiny. No one thought this was possible. What's your self-awareness? What are you really great at? <laughs> certainly podcast interviews, I'd say is certainly up there. I'm looking for your affirmation there, Austin. I'll wait to see the downloads. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm Scott Gates. I'm 37. I am the president of Western Window Systems. We're located in Phoenix, Arizona. We manufacture windows and doors, but actually like to tell people that we're in the changing construction business because we build window and door systems that open entire walls to the outside. So people that want to expand their living space and live both inside and outside and entertain their family and friends, we specialize in making that dream a reality for them. And how old is the business? It's actually 60 years old this year, but we like to say we're a 60-year-old startup that really found our vision for who we wanted to be in about 2011. Mm -hmm. How's that? Well, they hired this really good-looking guy. Is it you? Named Scott. Okay, yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> yeah. I'd say the embedded DNA of the culture was always strong. The business had found a great niche. It started actually as a glass company, but in the 80s, we like to refer to him as the patriarch of the company, changed it from a glass company into a window and door company. But Kind of the, what made Western special was they could do these really unique products, but because they were so technically challenging, the company was fully vertically integrated. So they would service it, install it, manufacture it, sell it. And when you have that kind of depth of business model, it's hard to scale outside of a small area. So it really built a foundation primarily in Arizona and serving few outside markets but inject private equity and kind of different visions in the late 2000s and thinking, wow, I think this product could translate across the country and the business model changed. And we started growing like crazy as we spread across North America. Could you just make it simpler about how the change was? Was it before like all custom and not these type of window walls or doors that you're talking about? I'm still trying to understand the difference in 2011 when you said it was kind of reborn. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So the product families that the company has built historically are aluminum-based windows and doors. And then as technology changed, you'd have hinge doors, sliding doors, operable casement sliding windows. 
And inherent in the business model was a focus on super high-end homes. So the niche was luxury, kind of contemporary modern homes, again, primarily in the Southwest. Well, in the change in leadership and the change in vision, we started realizing this type of architectural style and this demand for indoor-outdoor living is not only residing in the Southwest and not only residing in luxury homes, this is something that actually the everyday consumer wants, and they want it whether they're in a cold market or in a Southwest market. So to be able to meet that need and kind of have the vision to execute on it, we had to innovate, change some of our products, certainly change the business model to really deliver these products across the country and away across channels and geographies that it simply had never existed before. So before, were you focused on higher end market? You're selling just to kind of luxury homes, and now you brought down the pricing, and now you can sell to demographics that can afford it. Or I guess it'd have to be at least an average size, but even if it isn't luxury, because obviously low income homes, is, you're not going to be able to do this thing. In. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So if you think about it, the core was three, four, five million dollar homes. And that was the core business in 2011. And we could serve the whole house. But then all of a sudden, this was a great business lesson for me and our broader team is how do you take assets that you have with resources that you're capable and proven at building and innovate in a way where you deliver them via marketing and sales distribution and go-to-market strategy to a different audience. So what we did is we realized our whole house package of windows and doors is too expensive and too prohibitive from price perspective or a lead time perspective to be a window and door solution for a $250,000 home. But what if we didn't want to do all the windows and doors? What if we just wanted to do replace one wall of the house and that wall could be a wall or it could be have a few simple windows like you see in an everyday home and use this as an option upgrade where homeowners could go in a model home and say, I like those windows, but man, in the other model, they had that big door. So what we really did is kind of went to that track home production builders and said, we think we have a solution for you that at first glance looks expensive, but we want to show you how it's actually going to make you more money. Are you interested in hearing about that? And it worked. I've seen this before. And if anyone hasn't, I'm sure you can just kind of Google it. But imagine just, I guess, a family room. I, it was a newer house that I saw had this exact same thing that you're talking about that looks like a wall of windows or doors that you kind of see through. And then they just kind of push them back and fold them back. And then they can go right to their back patio where they have a brand new pool and stuff. So if anyone's like trying to visualize it, just imagine a back wall of a family room or something that goes outdoors and you're able to kind of move these walls to the side and kind of have indoor outdoor. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's a good description. And I think what's amazing about it is people start realizing, you know, I want a bigger house or maybe a little bit more entertaining space, but I don't want to move. Or I don't want a big footprint because I don't want to pay for an AC bill, but I'd love to have a little bit extra living space. I think what these doors ended up being is a major solution for homeowners that were trying to solve that problem, where a whole wall of glass slide stacks away, essentially your wall disappears. And if you have 40 or 50 people over to watch the Super Bowl, everybody still feels like they're in the same room and is still socializing and connecting, enjoying beautiful weather. Again, you were always doing this kind of for more of those luxury homes, maybe 2 million plus, and then you were able to figure out a way to make it cheaper so you could bring it into those mid-sized homes, or was that exactly kind of what happened here? Yeah, that was the goal. But when you serve a high-end market and you're tasked with growing and you've got aggressive owners that want to see a lot of success, 
obviously we're in business to make money, so gross margins are important, and we had always been a high margin company because we served a, a lucrative luxury niche. So the task at hand for our engineers and our supply chain team was, what can we do to pull price down? Because we felt like that was an important ingredient for that to see adoption and disruption in that new consumer base. But how do we deliver it at the same margin? So, you know, classic business, certain economies of scale, procurement strategies, some simplification of options, and some of that strategy and kind of innovation around how you brought, which by all accounts was a luxury good to an everyday consumer and kind of masked the standardization. So they still felt like they were getting the same door in a $250,000 house that a celebrity would use in a $15 million home. I don't think we touched on it. Like, How big is your company as far as revenues and a number of employees? Yeah. So we've got about 400 employees. We're going to be flirting with $150 million in sales. And 10 years ago, we were $6 million in sales. It's crazy how fast we've grown and about 60 employees. So you can see just how much the company's changed. And in its 60-year history before this run-up in the last decade, the company had always been 60 to 80 employees, somewhere between 5 and $8 million in revenue. And again, just to reemphasize, how many employees now? <laughs> because that's a huge jump. I was writing it down. I wrote down the 2009 numbers, but 2019? Yeah. So it's 400 employees. And last year, we did $130 million in revenue. And this year, we think we're going to do 20% more than that. I'm not a math genius, but you said the actual company's a little over 60 years old and you're 37, so you weren't the one actually starting it? Correct. Okay. Excellent math there, Austin. I'm impressed. Well, thank you. Well, if you're hiring, I can send you my resume. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And I think this is an interesting lesson for entrepreneurs is there are entrepreneurial opportunities that is different than sometimes starting your own business. I've always had an entrepreneurial bent, but I was actually going to start a company, but ended up there was a timing where I needed about 10 months for a job and I'd known the window industry and I ended up at this company, not as the CEO, but in a marketing role. What's great about sometimes going to a small company that has potential, if you're an entrepreneur and you've got big ideas and the culture of the company you're entering allows up and comers to succeed, you might end up being the CEO and doing something really crazy special. I think that's really important because, I mean, there's so many different ways that a business starts. It doesn't mean that you have to be the guy who starts it. And there's so many other roles or ways that things happen where it could be a family business and it's no longer a family business or vice versa. Because the percentage of people that are actually listening have actually start their own business from the ground up is probably pretty small. As far as being able to go into a business, I mean, all of us, even if you're starting your own business now, you probably had another job somewhere else at some point in time. Absolutely. So everyone can kind of understand. It's just like there's different ways to get to the top and be able to see these opportunities where you can, they must have saw something in you where you're able to get promoted to CEO and help grow this business. Again, I don't think you have to be labeled as the entrepreneur or the founder just because you started the business from the ground up. Perfectly okay to come in, work hard. And then if it's a good owner, they're going to see that you're working hard and want to promote you. So yeah, just tell us about that. Yeah, I would say as a listener of your program and knowing the type of people that it draws, these are people who are motivated and want to do unique things. And the pathway to starting your own company, the capital constraints, and sometimes just the hard reality of you need a paycheck. But what my story taught me is there are really good companies out there, exactly like you described, where maybe the vision wasn't quite as big or the original entrepreneur is maybe tired or looking to transition. And my advice to listeners would be go in that company and treat it like it's yours. Almost think of it like you are the entrepreneur that's starting something and let your ideas run wild. 
embrace a place that wants someone who's got big ideas and maybe needs the cover and a steady paycheck to be able to implement them in a way that sometimes a true founder struggles to do. And if you find that environment, it can be one of the best runs of your life that you didn't have to go raise VC funding or talk to some angel investor, that they were just out there waiting for your ideas and your leadership skills to take them to the next level. Even several interviews I've done recently that haven't gone out yet, but should go out by the time this one goes out. Really, it's like the entrepreneurs, almost all of them had other jobs and they were trying hard in that role and wanting to get promoted, but the people in charge just never saw that ability. So that's why they got frustrated enough to start their own. I think everyone, whether you're graduating college now or you're in high school or if you're older, there's always an opportunity where if you just work hard and you're able to add value, obviously, to the company, especially at the bottom line, then more than likely, hopefully they'll see that. And if they don't, then you can go start your own company. But it's always worth trying where you are and learning as many skills as you can to try to help the company you're in grow. 100% agree. And I think, especially for those young college grads, if that's not the organization you're experiencing, if you start a job, you're in the wrong position. And one of my favorite lessons post getting my degree is my career has always pulled me towards small business. And I know a lot of college grads, young people are drawn towards big business. These types of opportunities are born in the small business space. And keep your eyes open for something that you see could be bigger because it might just change your life. Is that what happened when you joined Western Window Systems? Did you already have that idea or concept of like, hey, maybe I might be able to take over this business one day? It wasn't quite that pure. I had spent some time in the window business actually on the distribution side out of college, just like a lot of things go, a random connection I made with somebody. I was hired in at a dealer and did some sales and knew the window business. And along the way, got connected to Western around this time that I was going to start a company that had nothing to do with windows. But like I was saying, I was about 10 months away. It was tied to a school calendar year and I just needed to have a steady job. I was young. I was having kids and I realized I need a paycheck to get me to my next endeavor. And I was very honest with that when I interviewed, but this is a testament to the then president, who's one of my closest friends to this day. He just saw something in me. And it was a really special moment and I think a sign of a great leader. But on my third month on the job, he took me to lunch and said, I want you to know you're going to run this company someday. I've been running this for four or five years, but I just see something in you. You're incredibly talented. I know you're just doing marketing now, but you're going to be the CEO of this company someday. And my job is to keep supporting you and staying out of your way. And he was an incredible boss and an incredible mentor. And I owe a lot to him. Let's be honest, most people weren't taught how to invest in school. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered, why does Wall Street seem to win so consistently? Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you, step-by-step, a process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. Online Trading Academy's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 100 
190,000 reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education could help you take better control of your financial future from now on. And a strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. What would you do if you knew skills designed to help you generate income and build confidence toward your retirement goals? Get started by joining more than 500,000 people who have attended one of their free classes. Their free online education class opened up my eyes on how the markets work today, and they can do the same for you. It's really a free, valuable education tool that you can't get anywhere else. They'll cover different trading and investing strategies you'll be able to use on a daily, weekly, or even annual basis. So sign up for a free three-hour introductory trading and investing class at otatrade.com forward slash YOLO. That's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash YOLO. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com forward slash YOLO. Again, taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. And again, if you own your own business right now and listening, you got to think of your employees like that too. So different concept of like, hey, eventually... Not everyone wants to run a company for 50 years or the rest of their life, right? If they started right out of college or whatever. But you said he saw something in you. I imagine that you have to at least have an idea of what he saw in you, at least at the interview or a couple months in, if he's already saying this to you, were you just coming in there working hard, getting results or what was going on? That's a good question. And this is one of my favorite things to talk to people about is my undergrad was in marketing. It's my passion. I'm a big believer And listeners, I'm sure, Austin, you've heard this, but there's an old Peter Drucker quote that says, businesses are nothing other than innovation and marketing. And his pitch there is a lot of the other parts of business where we spend all this time are somewhat commoditized and are played to a draw across just different companies. So when I started at Western, it was this company that had this really good foundation. It had really good products, but it was really bad at telling its story. So When I came in, I led a rebrand effort. We relaunched our website. We didn't have much of a budget because we were small. So I was tracking down. It's so funny because now we're so celebrated for our marketing. But back then, our brochures were like iPhone pixelated photos that looked absolutely horrible. So I had to be scrappy and track down better imagery. So I would go and scour real estate websites that happened to have our windows in them and track down the photographer and say, can you give me a deal on this, right? But our big lesson was when we rebranded and actually transitioned our story from products with features and benefits to a lifestyle solution that was truly going to make your life better, and we had a story and a brand that backed that up, the sales exploded. And we would have architects come in that would say, man, the improvements you have made in your products the past six months are incredible. And we had changed nothing in our products. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yes. And that was, I think, so powerful to our president at the time that he was just like, wow, this is what we were missing. And all the innovation that went into the brand strategy along the way, as I kept getting more and more opportunities for leadership, I tried to apply the same logic that a marketer takes to its customer to when in in the second year, I was asked to take over even leading our manufacturing facility because we had kind of those classic story where we grew really fast and then our operations exploded. And 
it was one of those challenges where sales go up, but profit goes down. What are we going to do? Our president came and said, hey, I know you've never been in operations, but you are the smartest guy I know. You will figure it out. I'm making you take over this job. And that type of thinking, I think is what he saw in me is that I was a problem solver with a ton of drive. And I was looking for a boss to let me run and just take my ideas and make them happen. I just needed someone to support me. And he was looking for someone who had big ideas and it was just a perfect fit. Are you sure this guy just wasn't your dad? <laughs> he was not my dad. And what's amazing of his story is he's a young guy too. I'm 37. He's about five, six years older than me. But in this run-up of growth, as he transitioned the company to me, you can imagine there was a few liquidity events. The business has sold three or four times since I've been here. And he was able to retire very young as a very well taken care of individual because he was a smart enough leader to believe in his protege and invest in him and let him run. I want to put some dates on it because we know you're 37 today. You're saying you basically joined 10 years ago. So did you join when you were about 27-ish or so? Yeah, 28. I just had a kid. My wife was pregnant with another and I was had this entrepreneurial idea in my head, but this was going to be my stopgap job when I was 28. Was the wife pregnant with your kid or somebody else's kid? Yeah, good question. Luckily, by the striking resemblance she bears to me, I was confident that the daughter was mine. Okay, that's good. You also said that even like three months in, this is huge about all these people coming back to you saying, wow, the changes you've made in this product are kind of unbelievable. So I guess that says a lot about your marketing that you say you did nothing and they all thought something changed. So what are some things that we can learn even from your initial months there that sound like made this turnaround? Sounds like you're just became, you were the marketing genius right when you stepped in there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I had everybody refer to me as. So that's probably a good first step. Right. We talk so much in business. And as you talk to business leaders, it comes up a lot on your podcast, but it's the power of brand. And your brand is so much more than your logo, but it starts there. So what is the experience that your target customer has when they interact with your value proposition? So we really felt like this indoor outdoor living thing was so much bigger than it was actually at the time. And it's, I'm sure you've heard the story about how Microsoft developed an iPad 10 years before the iPad, but it never took off. Why? Well, it's because the marketing around it, it's very rarely in business is it about the product itself. It's about the positioning of the product, the story behind the product, the way the brand interacts with the consumer, how they feel about it, what the brand says about themselves. And when we really shifted that, I think it just connected because we were after a very high-end clientele and we charged a high-end price, but our brand was not worthy of that. When all of a sudden we connected those dots, not only was our brand worthy, it became a hot commodity that people wanted to be a part of. And we, in the window and door space, you've got a lot of very old brands that are kind of, let's say, uh, defragmented at the top part of the scale, but their brands are a little tired. And our brand came along at a time where the market was going more contemporary, when this indoor-outdoor living thing was so much more interesting than standard windows and doors. And we made people feel really good about being a part of our company. Can we get a little bit more specific on some of the details? Because I see how cool these windows and doors are. I mean, I've seen that. I mean, I don't know if even anyone else was making them at the time or makes them today. I imagine you have to have some competition making them. But to me or maybe other listeners, I'm like, dude, you're just selling windows and doors. You're not selling like the iPad, right? You were saying earlier. So you had to be doing something that really changed it. It seems like it's hard unless your product was that much better. And I don't see how much better it could be because it almost seems like a commodity being a window. 
Can you give us some more details, at least in the beginning years of what you did to turn around this brand? Because again, I'm looking at pictures on Google and stuff. Anyone who sees these at home with these windows and doors, they look fantastic. And even your office space is like badass looking at this. When you're talking about the brand in general, I guess there's something you have to do before people even see these pictures. Yeah. In the kind of build out of how it happened, this is just a good hack, right? So go back to 2011. What was the hottest brand in the market? It was Apple. So even when we redesigned our logo, we're like, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's just use the same font that Apple uses in their logo because the type of consumer that Apple's drawing is the type of consumer we want to draw. And then all of a sudden, a foundation just starts to build out from there. So our old brochures or a lot of what you see in the window and door space, because there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy around testing and water pressures and air pressures. Engineering-led companies want their marketing to tell you all the spots where the product's going to fail. We wanted a different objective. We didn't want to talk about, it's almost that you take cues from the best consumer brands. Apple, when they're launching a product, they're not talking about the specific kind of jargon that they're used to seeing in the technical space. It was very much around, this is how you're going to interact with this product daily. So we came up with this marketing campaign where we said, we exist to help people live, design, and build better. And the premise of that was we have target customers. Even though our products sold through distribution, we actually try to get past our distributors and create a pull-through marketing demand. And when we say live, we're talking to consumers. When we say build, we're talking to builders and contractors. And when we say design, we're aiming at architects. Well, let's tailor every part of our marketing when it's aimed at consumers to be really reinforcing how we're going to help them live better. They're going to see and read about it in the brochures. Every single advertisement we do is going to have a quotation from a consumer that says, this is their testimony of what living better meant for them. And then do the same thing with these other stakeholders. But then it gets deeper than your brochures. It actually manifests into your office. And what do they feel when you're coming to your space? And what I found is the ball of momentum around telling our story just caught this incredible wave. And we just started realizing, man, we're onto something here. Let's make this unlike anybody's ever experienced when they've talked about with windows and doors. Again, I think we can all kind of understand. Most people are just listening to audio. They're maybe doing house chores or whatever. I can see visually, if anyone saw a brochure, I imagine you have pictures like this where it makes you want to have it, to have this indoor, outdoor living space. But can you paint us a picture again of when this turnaround happened? Did it happen in 2011? Or like how long did it take to turn this thing around where you really know a significant jump in sales or whatever? Yeah, great question. It's fun just to kind of look at the chronology. So in 2011, that's when we did the rebrand. And that first year was less about entering a new channel and more about just expanding our core business. So the rebrand in and of itself, coupled with an emphasis on indoor-outdoor living and, and a movement, this is always true in business too. You do a lot of hard work to produce success, but there's also some macro wins that are at your back. So architecturally, Around this time, people started to want their homes to look a little bit more modern and a little bit more contemporary. So our product, just by virtue of the fact that it's aluminum and it had narrow styles, it just looked more modern than some of the bigger competitors in the space. So that first year we took off, we grew 50%. We think we're the smartest guys in the world. It's always fun. The big percentages are always a lot easier when you're smaller, right? So that first year we grew. The second year is when we got creative and said, what if we went to a totally different buying pool and targeted these production builders? That's when we created an entirely new sales division and marketing campaign aimed at production home builders. So you think what a fundamental shift it is to go from high-end, 
luxury, $5 million to $15 million homes, and then make your product and your business feel like it exists for the high volume production home builder. It was a tricky conundrum, but it was mostly a marketing equation that we solved, and then that took off. In that second year, we grew 50%. In the early years, you just have this phenomenal explosion of growth that kept getting fed for many years. But the third year, at least the end of the second year, is when we realized, oh man, we were not ready for all these sales and our operations fell apart. And that's when we had to get really serious of, there was a lot of blood on the walls, a lot of angry people, and can we overcome this challenge? So what was the equation that you figured out? You said you found the equation of selling to these lower, again, not million dollar plus houses. What was the equation you solved to get into these? I love that question because I think it's at the heart of every business strategy is what is the motivator your target customer is looking for? So what was going against us, even though we had used economies of scale to pull down price, our product was still from a square footage price basis, significantly more expensive than the window products it was replacing. But it was closer to the same price if you also factored in the expense of the wall and the framing and the drywall and the electrical. Well, we had to help the builder understand that. And then we all have this challenge of getting our customers to pull up market and invest more in exchange for design benefits or brand premiums. But we found that was less valuable because our company and our brand, while it was being celebrated at the time, was not well known nationally. So instead, what we focused on is what is the economic benefit to that builder by using our product? So if you think about the business model of upgrade type businesses, you think about car dealerships or how the car industry sells. They want to get you into a base model and then get you upgrading from there. And all the profits are in the upgrades. Home building is very similar to that. What we try to connect the dots on is if you option this door, it's going to be wildly successful. And look at these case studies that we can show you. People are going to love this and they're going to buy it. But not only are they going to buy it, they're going to decide to upgrade their outdoor pavers. They're going to go, you know, that pool I was maybe going to do later. Now that we have this door, kind of want to do the pool. And you know what? Maybe I want an outdoor fireplace and barbecue. Yeah, maybe let's do it now. Well, the builders were experiencing phenomenal success that this door was almost a gateway to further investment within their customer scale. So we positioned the product. This is not expensive. This is a money maker for you. And that was, I think, the nut that we cracked. And to me, it seemed much easier for a company like yours, if you're selling to $2 million plus homes to come down versus like if you're going the opposite way up, if they know about you, they're like, oh yeah, we've seen these in luxury houses and we want our medium priced home to look more like that. So that seems like kind of an easier selling point once you got into it, I guess maybe even what year did that really start happening? Yeah, that's 2012, 13. Okay. And I think you're right because you think about it almost like a BMW strategy. It's easier for a BMW to have a seven series and kind of sell down into a three series, but it's much harder for a Chevy to try to sell up to a seven series type customer. But what's interesting is there's a lot of internal debate of, are we gonna degrade our brand by selling down market? What is that gonna to do to our core business? And that was one of those big internal debates that we really had to overcome. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, my thought process is like, maybe you would have just called it a different company too, yep. but I guess you decided to keep it all the same underneath one house. Yeah. And some of that was, you got to be chess players in business, right? You believe you're onto something. You know, you're charging a premium. We felt we could leverage the brand equity of our core business. And that was actually part of the value proposition to the builder or the homeowner even that was deciding 
to purchase the upgrade option of, I've got this luxury product. This is not a door, it's a Western door. And even though they might not have known Western when they got there, we actually made brochures for homeowners at the builder's offices so that they could flip through and see some of our portfolio of $15 million homes so they could feel, wow, I'm getting something really special. And we always felt that our competition was going to emerge long-term from below and not above. And we felt like having our brand equity, our way to hold off some of the bottom feeders that would eventually come to play against us. When you keep saying we, was that really you that saw this like coming? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm a passionate guy and a lot of this was under my authority, but I'm a very collaborative leader. And when people say, what's the secret sauce at Western? I always say it's our culture and our culture, it's a business buzzword. But what that means more specifically is this amazing group of people that we have here. So none of these decisions, I mean, we have a very collaborative, almost combative in a healthy way, debating culture. So none of these decisions were mine alone. It was definitely a team effort. I don't know if we got any like super tactical things of what you did right when you came in, let's say two years, whatever, because that's when you said you have 50% growth, 50% growth. And I'm trying to think of anything that was either free ideas or low cost tactical things that actually work to change this. Again, the concept makes a lot of sense. Like, okay, you came in here, you rebranded, it looks nice, looks sexy. You're riding the wave of this. Also people wanting this inside outdoor living space that they didn't have. So you're kind of on the right trend on everything, but I imagine there had to be some actual things or examples that you can give us of things that really did help significantly other than just quote unquote, like rebranding. Yeah, I like that question. So think of it this way. The rebrand to actually have authenticity with the customer needs to feel very real. So very low cost, easy to implement things that I would say were very aligned of what we did is, okay, not just our logo couldn't look a certain way. It was every single document that left our company, both internally and externally, had to look a certain way. Now, that can seem like busy work, but what it does is it elevates the pride and the authenticity of what you're communicating to the market for everybody in the company. When you've got 50 different Microsoft Word documents and they're all formatted weird because some person internally made some process at some point, it all feels haphazard. Haphazard is not going to work when you're trying to sell a premium brand. So little things of just making everything feel consistent. And then what we worked hard of is that we had a sales team, obviously before all of this, that were used to selling a certain way. So what we focused a lot on is this is no longer how you're going to sell. This is the promise and who we are to the market. And to be candid, some people in that experience were no longer the right fits. They had a way of selling or a way of telling our story that just did not authentically connect with what we were trying to portray. And we just had to clean that up. So I would say to business owners out there, especially if you're trying to position yourself, because let's face it, a lot of businesses are commodities. Brand is a fantastic way to insulate yourself or position yourself at the higher end. But consumers are smart. If that brand feels only a few feet deep past your website, they're not gonna trust you. So you gotta set it up in a way where everything about their experience feels true to what you're putting forward. And those things don't often take a lot of money, they just take better leadership and better vision, and you just gotta make sure you're holding true to what you said. Your sales guys, what would they say before and then what would they say after, as far as like yeah. what you had to tell them to switch their communication styles or how to sell your windows and doors? Yeah, a great question. So they would come in often and say, can I show you our three inch roller and talk to you about our class two anodized finish and show you the 50 colors that we have available and talk to you about the sizes that we can do. 
here's our features and benefits. And that was the original face. What it turned into is, what is the crazy thing, Mr. Architect, that you've always been wanting to do that you thought no Windows supplier was capable of doing for you? What is that thing that you think would just make your house amazing? Can I let them talk? Let me show you how our product can do that. We're going to help you design the way you've always wished you could design, but the supply chain was not smart enough or capable enough or innovative enough to solve your problems. We're the company that can. And it was amazing how effective the repositioning of who we were had on helping us get more demand. So your actual customers or the people you're selling to, are they like interior designers and builders versus the actual, say, if I was going to buy a new home? I imagine, are you targeting the interior designers and like I said, the builders versus like me as a customer buying a home? Absolutely. And this is another good business lesson. When we talk about customers, you often have, who do you sell to and contract with, but who is the ultimate decision maker? And those are not always the same people. So in our business, we manufacture in a facility in Phoenix and sell all throughout the country. But the actual place how we sell is through a local dealer in that market. No different. You think about a car model. BMW sells to a BMW dealership, but the dealership very often may get your business because of proximity or real estate, very rarely though because of their own marketing. So we had never thought that way. Essentially outsource the sales function to our dealers. That was a bad strategy. So what we changed to was sometimes on the home, an interior designer is the key decider. They're the influencer that the homeowner leans on the most. Sometimes it's the architect. Sometimes it's the builder. Sometimes it's the consumer themselves. So while we certainly do market to our dealers, we really, really focus our efforts on getting to the ultimate decider and have tailored special brochures, special experiences, and actually specialized sales force that hits all those different influencers in our value chain. Could you just walk through that one more time, the BMW example, as far as you're saying if someone's going to buy a BMW, they're going to a local dealer, but the local dealer likely didn't do the marketing. Actually, BMW did the marketing, and that's why I wanted to go there. And can you explain that, how, yeah. who your BMW dealer was as a Western Windows Systems? Yeah, and you think about it, right? BMW, you decide you want a BMW, it's because the brand means something to you. Now, Joe Smith BMW dealership that's two miles from your house, Joe Smith might be a great guy. But very rarely are you buying that BMW because Joe Smith's a great guy or he runs a great business. Now, your experience in buying the car needs to be good. And BMW certainly wants to appeal to Joe Smith to get him to be an entrepreneur and set up his dealership. But ultimately, BMW's success on the demand side is going to come from the brand resonating with the buyer. So our business is very similar. We manufacture here, but service is local. One of the reasons the old version of this business never scaled was because if you're going to also do the dealership model, that's very hard and it's very local and there's local relationships. And our dealers are often very, very good entrepreneurs. So we partner with them in Scottsdale and LA and New York, and they'll have a setup. So if a customer or an architect from New York calls and says, I really want the Western product, we position them back to our local dealer. And that's the person we're actually going to do business with but we actually spend more focus marketing to their consumer than we do to the dealer themselves. You've always used this dealer relationship though. Did this switch from, you said the before and after that didn't scale? Yes, that was a change that came. So we've had a few different rounds of private equity investment. The first group that came in realized this is a good business. They've got some good things going on. And this was actually even pre-me and shifted the model from we're a full service operation that manufactures, sells it, services it, and installs it 
to we are a manufacturer and we're going to sell through distribution and set up dealers across the Southwest. And that change was a cultural shift that's not always easy, but it was one of the most critical decisions in setting up the business model to actually become what it has grown into today. Okay. So before you didn't have this dealership model, but now you do. That was one of the switches that really made this thing scale and made you grow to this significance. Yeah. And I think about it like as a business lesson, and this will change over time for any entrepreneur. Sometimes when you start, you got to be everything to everybody. You got to do this. You got to do that because you're just trying to get people to buy things. And then along the way, you're going to realize, well, what are our core competencies? What are we actually good at? So we knew, Western knew in its past, they knew how to install. But if they, employees of Western, had to personally install every sale, the risk taking, the time, the positioning in other states, it was one of those competencies that you realize that's not actually who we are. We need to change this. And I think that's a lesson entrepreneurs have to evaluate all the time because it will change as they grow. And we had to realize our actual skill in this equation was that we're good at building really complicated products and people will pay us to do that. We need to outsource some of these other functions and let some of the value creation go to those local dealers. So the local dealers that you have, for instance, in LA, do they only sell your windows or do they sell other products too? Great question. One of the things is they very often sell other products. So part of the equation, and this is why you definitely can't ignore them from a marketing perspective, because it's like any product. They're going to bring in several different products because they want to make money and they want to sell things. So how do you get their loyalty? How do you get them excited about selling your product more than others? This was another one of our great breakthroughs is those dealers typically sell five to six different products that, while not exactly the same as ours, are in the window and door space. But how do we get their loyalty? How do we get them to want them to sell more than us? Well, give them a higher commission. Yeah, that's part of it. Or you get into their pocketbook, right? So if you show that they can make more money selling your product, ooh, now they're excited. Well, we were able to show them that the aluminum product, the indoor-outdoor capabilities, the massive sizes and customization inherent in our value proposition, not a lot of other companies can do that. So if you can go out and create demand around the kind of benefits of our product, you don't have another dealer competing with you lowering your price. So we worked hard to connect the dots there. The other big thing, and this is kind of often sometimes the case in a dealer model, is they're busy and if the market's good, they don't have a lot of time to go out and create new business. They're more processing what's in front of them. So a real value creation for them is bringing them business, bringing them leads. So because our marketing and our sales effort was out targeting their customers, we were able to say, hey, not only do you want to sell our products, here's five jobs that you can make money on right now. Are you interested? So that level of kind of forward thinking and lead creation was not really happening in our industry. And that bought us a lot of loyalty and really helped us grow our dealer base cross country. So to me, I mean, I can see how you're saying the marketing or rebrand, how maybe that helped your one or whatever, but it sounds like these other things are really what made you get to the size you are now, right? Absolutely. And it's funny, it's like you have an inflection point where everything changes. And this is going to sound a little cliche, so you just got to go with me here. But in about our second or third year, it may have been our third year, we actually rewrote our vision. And I know that's a buzz thing. And a lot of entrepreneurs say that's a waste of time. You know, that stuff doesn't actually matter. But when we rewrote our vision, it was like this moment where we said, we're not just a window and door company. 
our vision was we're going to have fun creating a winning company that changes construction and helps our partners live better. And within each section of that vision, I wrote this brochure where I documented, here's what we mean by fun. Here's why we say creating. Here's what winning looks like. And then what happened was all of these elements started to filter into every aspect of our business. The marketing approach, the tailored strategy with the dealers, the innovative ways we were cutting lead times in the plant, the best-in-class customer service experience we were trying to deliver, the innovative ways we were overcoming some constraints in our in outsource solutions that we came up with. It was really a turning point where I'd say we went from having savvy marketing to having a really dynamic culture. And when your culture's great, now all of a sudden everything gets awesome. And, and that was something I figured out a few years in that has really fueled us. What do you call the guys who are selling your windows in these different cities? We call them dealers. Okay, dealers. And so these dealers, do they exclusively stay in the windows or do they sell all different types of parts of the house? Like, I guess, other than just windows. You've got a mixture. Some of them kind of sell downstream. They want to sell more to the same customer. So they'll get sometimes into glass enclosures or sometimes they're even dabble in the cabinetry space or like trim and casing. But I'd say more often than not, they're window specialists. And what's always kind of funny is it's the amazing thing about capitalism. You don't have these things you experience every day, but it's amazing how the market just produces these whole segments of industry where very lucrative big businesses are run on simply selling windows and doors. But I never thought you were at this size. I mean, especially now or even back then, it's kind of crazy to think that to me, it almost sounds like you just slapped lipstick on this thing. And then that made it $120 million, $130 million business in 10 years from $6 million. Yeah. It's always fun in hindsight to go, yeah, you know. We got really good at branding and then sales just took off. I mean, it's like every story. So many long days, so many hard moments, so many competitors trying to take everything you've created and it never really ends. But I think, and I said this a little bit before, there was some macro trends that just, I want to say that the waves were starting and we helped make the waves bigger. And this whole indoor outdoor thing, I think a part of helping accelerate, but it's so much bigger than our company now. But what I get our employees excited about is we were a part of literally changing the way homes look. And our vision is that someday in the not too distant future, every new home that's built is going to have a door like this. And when you're recruiting someone to work for a window and door company, which no one ever dreamed of as a kid, you get them excited about changing things like that, going, hey, you're going to be part of something special that someday you're going to be having a beer telling your grandkids about, maybe not having a beer with your grandkids, but having a beer going, I helped change the market. And we try to connect that to them a lot. Tied down at work? Don't let your software search kill those summer vibes. Now you can ditch the office overtime and find options for your business in minutes with Captera. Read hundreds of thousands of reviews and make finding the right software for your business a breeze at captera.com forward slash millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 950,000 reviews of products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software, everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. 
Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com slash millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. Captera.com slash millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera, software selection simplified. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, The link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. Felt like it kind of got brushed over for a second because you only talked about it for a minute, but I'm bringing the leads to these people. I think anyone can understand like in a commission role, if you're going to sell somebody else's product and I'm going to get a higher commission, then obviously it's going to incentivize me to try to push towards your product. But you're talking about bringing leads to these people too. So tell us about that. Because again, I feel like that had to help significantly, like these other little things other than just the rebranding. Here's the interesting thing about it. So I have this phrase that I use a lot with our staff that I say this often and you'll understand it after I say it, but just because things are strategic doesn't mean they're insincere. So what was happening with these leads is a two-part strategy. These dealers who are busy, they're always looking for something new to help them make more money because they are oftentimes so busy processing what they're doing that they don't have time to go out and find the next new opportunity. So their sales cycles go in waves. They close orders and then they got to go out and find new ones. So they have a dip and then they sell more. Our job was to kind of be that gap filler. So they just constantly stay busy, but it's not only for their benefit. Part of our strategy is dealers sell other products. If we simply allowed them to sell things, It's not that we don't trust them. We have very deep partnerships, but their job is to run their business to their best benefit. Our job is to run it for ours. So what we challenged our sales team on is we cannot simply outsource this function because a dealer, by definition, if they can make more money selling another product than they could ours, why wouldn't they do that? We can't outsource that function to them. We've got to create strong demand downstream. We're not having Western is not an option to the architect builder or homeowner. And it's a neat two-part strategy that we sell to our dealers is very beneficial to them because it's very, very true. But it's also protecting our flank and making sure we're driving demand and not just trusting it's going to come back to us from them. So you still have your own sales department that does it too, alongside of these guys who are the dealers? Correct. Okay. 100%. And then when you're going to close a sale, are you doing it through, again, a general contractor or interior designer? Are those your two major clients, if you will? Yeah. So if you think about it this way, almost the sales cycle, our sales teams and our marketing is out at the front edge. Someone's thinking about designing a new home. Okay. 
How do they want to design it? Well, they might see an advertisement in a magazine we do, or they're picking an architect that draws homes that look a certain way. We want our sales team in front of that architect saying, let me show you all the different things you can do. So when that homeowner selects that architect, they draw and design the product or the home with our products in mind. Well, that's outstanding. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to actually estimating and getting a bid for the product after it's already designed, they call us again and say, well, who should we work with? We say, well, we're going to take you to this dealer. So then that dealer very often doesn't sell even to the designer or the architect. They're part of the home, but usually they're selling to the contractor. That's usually who executes the purchase. So we've done the work to get the homeowner wanting the product. Oftentimes our sales team is also calling on and visiting contractors. And then we're trying to create the demand so that we can lay it on the doorstep of the dealer who will execute the final sale. Do they get the same commission like the dealers or what's the deal with that? Yeah. So our guys are actually commissioned. So their job is tasked to grow their markets and increase their sales. And their variable comp is attached to big growth. I mean, five, six years of 50% growth, these guys have seen their incomes really grow. But the dealer, instead of getting a commission from us, they're buying and reselling like an entrepreneur. So their profit is all tied to what kind of elasticity they can get in the pricing from their end consumer. So our team's job is to create the demand. The dealer's job is to close the sale as profitably as possible. But there's no chance of them. I mean, if that dealer wants to sell some similar product, I don't know how much you have to go through that or if it's like basically a closed deal if you're bringing them the sale. Yeah, that's kind of the nuance, right? Is you're always dancing a little bit of a line right. and that's why you're trying to create a lot of loyalty. But ultimately, if there is a downside in an outsourced or a dealer or distribution-based strategy is very rarely are you the exclusive provider. Now, there are even windows and door companies in our space that try to focus their business on exclusive relationships. Our philosophy is we want entrepreneurs to be entrepreneurs and that's what dealers are. We're not going to tell them how to run their business. But what we feel is we want to earn the right to win. So if we provide them enough value for they can make enough money and we're creating demand on the front end, we don't have to be concerned about what the contract says. We're going to win their business anyway. So your competitors just not doing this? I think they're starting to try because we have definitely caught everybody off guard, but they all know who we are now. This is another good business lesson, right? You mentioned this a little bit earlier. I'm sure there's other companies that make products like this now. 100% true. So what I like to say to our staff all the time is this is not about a better mousetrap. The reason I always say culture wins is so like innovation is one of our core values. So a lot of companies say that. Well, what does that look like? Well, a lot of companies that means, well, you got to make new products. Well, that's true with us. We've done some crazy cutting edge things and we try to always be ahead, but innovation is also in the business model. So the second a competitor launches a product that looks like ours, then we got to beat them another way. Or the second they try to do our follow our sales strategy, we got to be two steps ahead of that with changing and innovating constantly. And if you get everybody to sign up for that type of thinking, they're not going to win because they've duplicated or copied what we've done. We're going to win because we're going to be more innovative. And sometimes if it's price pressure, we'll find a way to lower price, but still protect margins. Or we'll just find a way to innovate up market and offer a value proposition that the lower price product can't offer. And that is just happening nonstop at West. But imagine most listeners are thinking, I'm thinking, I'm like, what the hell is innovative about a window or door? <laughs> yeah, you go, it's aluminum and glass. Like, what's that cool about that, right? We have a pretty crazy innovation story that happened better part of last year. 
most part of 17, part of 18. But our products, and I know you saw them on our website, they're beautiful, they're aluminum, they've got glass. But the hard part is aluminum is very conductive and it's not the most energy efficient. It's super strong. It's got a great sustainability message, but it conducts. I mean, you've touched a hot piece of aluminum or a car when the sun's on it or when the snow's on it, you can feel that energy transfer. So our challenge was we had markets that were super cold or super hot that were like, I really want this product. But the energy codes, our product could not meet the codes that had been specified due to the weather conditions in those states. And sometimes those codes were energy related. Sometimes they were structural related. So our company stacked hands and said, okay, here's the deal. In one year's time, we are going to launch an entire new family of products that can meet every energy code in North America and every structural code, including the hurricane impact codes in Florida. And to do so, we've got to build a chassis that is so dynamic that it looks like an elegant, perfect solution for Vancouver, Canada, and also for parts of Florida. And that just does not happen in our space. Typically, British Columbia window companies sell to British Columbia and Florida companies sell to Florida because it's so hard to make something so dynamic that you couldn't beat a local player. And we stacked hands on this and said, okay, here's the challenge. A whole family of products is 14 products in one year. So not only is the engineering and the physics of this almost impossible, the sheer scale of launching this many products in one year is impossible. And the team pulled it off. They absolutely got 14 products launched in one year. At Energy Codes, they made an aluminum product as energy efficient because it's a hybrid of aluminum and fiberglass as a vinyl window. And they enabled it to pass hurricane impact tests and structural tests that products like ours with our thermal efficiency had never passed before. So it's a little bit window nerdy, but pretty darn innovative when you think about our space. I liked more of the innovation when you brought up that you can be innovative in the business model too. Like I said, I was just bringing that up because I'm just like, I could see innovation in technology. All of us can all the time. But when you're talking about something that's more commoditized, like what you do, it's kind of hard for us to even put my mind about what you could do to innovate. And you're saying that y'all did like 14 products in a year. I mean, I got to be honest, I think a lot of people listening are like, dude, this guy's so out of my ballpark. He's doing 130 million. <laughs> what lessons can you give us for the small business owner who has a couple employees or a medium size that can help us out? Like again, tactical things. Cause I feel like we just brushed over how you're able to come in three months in, you say the CEO says you're going to be the owner. And it just seems like it just kind of happened. And you're just like saying <laughs> it just rebranded. But what did you actually start doing? I mean, other than maybe the dealership model, I could definitely see or how that could help significantly. And the commissions, I don't think enough people think about that. So that made a lot of sense to me, but I'm not seeing what else like really blew this thing up. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So first off to those guys that are like, wow, this guy's got a big business. I'd say, just remember 10 years ago, our business was tiny. No one thought this was possible. So there's amazing, and no one saw this opportunity within the business model. It wasn't supposed to happen. And that might be true of your business as well. So first, just dream big. But now here's are the types of ways when I say innovative in the business model, this is what I mean. When you're pitching a product to a builder and you're trying to get them to pay more, don't just talk to them about how nice your product is. Get creative and show them. And not only did we help them see how much profit they could make, we actually made tools that tried to forecast their profitability. So when they were looking at our brochure, on top of it was a little sheet that said, this is about, based on our research, how much more profit you can make per home. That cost us nothing. It was just going, how could we tell our story a little bit differently? And then going back to even some of the early days, we had no marketing budget, but we knew that we were in nice homes. We have no money to spend. What could we do? 
what if we went and found photos off of a realtor's website? We had an instance once where we wanted to launch a new product, but we were in a very small building and we literally had no space. And it's one of those moments where as an entrepreneur, you're like, I just want to do this, but I just can't do it. Resource constraint. So we literally spitballed and we treated our square footage as a constraint. And we said, how much is this square footage in our building worth? If we could find the space to launch a new product and we needed like 10,000 square feet to launch this product because we needed some manufacturing space some inventory space. And then what we did is we went all around our building and we had little 10,000 square foot blocks and we said, which areas of our building are not making us profit? And then that produced an idea to outsource storage of some of our raw materials to a different location with our painter because we were innovative and going, wait a second. We don't need a new building. Our owners won't let us get a new building. But if we could get 10,000 feet this way, man, we could actually do this. And I think the biggest challenge for us as leaders in business, I read a fantastic HBR article about this the other day. Don't think what you should do. Always think what you could do. Because if you think about what you could do, innovative ideas are really going to come out. What's been the hardest thing about doing this whole thing? Because it seems everything's gone pretty well since you kind of took over. (laughs) then I'm probably not doing justice to the story because it's been hard. I will say, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about this. The hardest thing about growth, there's multiple things. It's just ripe with problems. So there's a great book I read one time called Predictable Success, and it talks about just the waves and seasons you go through. And one of the things it said so well is the first stretch of growth, they call it the fun stage. Your business moves from the, oh my gosh, are we ever going to make it to, oh my gosh, people love us. And you start to take off and people are buying your stuff and you're patting yourself on the back because the numbers look big. You're starting to actually make a little money. And then what happens next is they call it the whitewater phase where just, man, things just go crazy. All of a sudden, the people, the customers who used to love you, they start to hate you because you're not delivering on the promises you made them. And that phase of our evolution, which was probably the third year, was so hard. I mean, to go from a year ago, people telling you how amazing you are to a year later, everybody telling you how much you suck. It's not easy to go through that. And we had to get really creative to overcome some of those capacity issues. You just start realizing all along the way, you need so much fantastic people to keep up with your growth. And one of the dynamics I found as we've gotten bigger The level of leader, and this has been super hard, is sometimes the leader that was so amazing for you when you were $10 million or $20 million and just was such a hero and problem solver. When that person is not the person to take you to 50 million or 100 million or 150 million, that is some of the hardest, most gut wrenching moments you go through as a leader. And man, I have seen them all in this run and it is tough. So it's definitely not ripe. It's definitely ripe for problems. And you're going to grow a lot on this journey. So the guy who was CEO before you, did you have to kick him out? (laughs) No, you know what? A gift that I appreciate so much in employees and certainly in a boss is self-awareness. It's something that a lot of people lack, even though they don't know they lack it. One of the gifts and most amazing things about my previous boss is he was incredibly self-aware. He was a good hirer and position maker partly because of that, because he knew what he was and what he wasn't. And he told me early on, I like small business, but the types of headaches and challenges and problems that exist in running a $100 million company versus a $30 million company, I'm not interested in those headaches. He goes, I'm not built for that, but you are. And I'm going to be happy to sail off into the sunset and proud of my friend whose hands I left it in. So 
he was uh, gracious and left a very happy man. What's your self-awareness? What are you really great at? <laughs> certainly podcast interviews, I'd say is certainly up there. I'm looking for your affirmation there, Austin. I'll wait to see the downloads. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I will say what I have realized even more, and you know, I talked a lot about marketing to you. That's certainly a skill. You know, I've been in the president CEO seat for a while. And I think the thing I'm most passionate about, I've said this a few times, is creating culture and just setting a vision and create an environment where people can do their best work. One of the things I'm most proud of is in 2018, Western won one of Inc.'s best workplaces. And that's an award you see often go to tech companies where everybody in the company is white collar. They've all got equity grants and they've got these amazing offices. But you got to think most of our staff, 70% of them actually work on a factory floor. And how do you create an environment where people who are doing direct labor actually love coming to work every day? You give them walls that open up with windows and doors. <laughs> yeah, that's how we say, man, you know, you've arrived when you can actually afford our products. So our incentives have had to come in different formats. But when people say they love their job, and it's so often the case here, we did a word bubble of that was part of the sync study. And they said, if you could pick one word to describe your company, what would it be? And they all say fun. And the thing I'm most proud of is that we've created an environment where people actually think work is fun. And they're constantly challenged, but they love coming here every day. I think if I have any self-awareness, it's I'm a leader who knows how to create a fun environment where people get to do great things. And it's an incredible gift when someone can love their job because most of America doesn't. And I'm glad that our staff does. Before we get off the call, I mean, you seem like the marketing genius. Do you have any suggestions or simple things that people could do or I guess big errors that you might see if you're ever looking at businesses or what they could do well that could help them out significantly? I think it was a good idea what you talked about, all the word docs, if they all look sloppy, because I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm very in tune with that type of style too, making sure everything looks the same to create that kind of brand. But is there anything else or suggestions that you might have for someone who needs that marketing help that doesn't have the same vision or thought processes that you might have? I'd say don't be afraid to pull in other sources. In this day and age, capitalism is so diverse. There's a lot of creative marketing agencies out there that are not that expensive. Small entrepreneurs, they're there to help. I'd say first, consider that. But second, the biggest sin I see most when it comes to marketing and positioning a product is people tailor their marketing or their sales pitch or even the purpose of their business the way they want it to be. So they're thinking about themselves and what it means to them and how they would want to be sold. And a good marketer really leans into a more empathetic perspective. Smart business people don't think of what am I looking for? They really think, what is my customer looking for? And if you really force yourself to evaluate your brand, your advertising, your brochures, your website, you should say, am I truly speaking to them or am I speaking to me? How would someone who I'm trying to get to buy something from me, am I really getting through to what they're after? And if you dig a little deeper and you ask better questions, oftentimes they'll tell you what they're looking for. You just got to have the discipline to actually do it. Did you do that initially? We did. Surveys are a big part of that. And I actually, some of my secret sauce was, I didn't elaborate on this, but I started in the window business at the dealer. So our customers are dealers. I actually was in the mind of a dealer because I knew what it was like to be them. 
Yeah, that's huge then because you've actually been there. So you understand what their incentives are when they're there and making sure yeah, percent right. if you didn't start off there, you were the customer. Yes. And I actually think, because I know some of your listeners do want to start a company. They're not looking to join a company. Oftentimes, a great place to start a company is upstream or downstream of your current position because you know all the pain associated with your role. You know how people think. You know how your company operates. How could you solve or be a solution upstream or downstream for your company? There's a lot of clues for entrepreneurs in that question. Thank you for joining us, Scott. I think we might have to have a second interview later on, if that's okay, to dive into more of this stuff, because I think you have a lot of information maybe that could help other people, especially if they're wondering what's wrong with their business, right? So I really appreciate you taking the time here to tell your story and again, kind of jumping around and getting a good idea of what we can do to make our businesses a little bit better. But before we get off, is there anything else that you'd like to leave everyone with as far as like words of wisdom or anything else that might help them? Yeah. And this is going to sound like you told me to say this, but he, you 100% didn't. Listen to podcasts like this. I'm a bit of a business junkie. I love this podcast because I just feel like no matter what size of business an entrepreneur is running, you can always learn something. And part of the reason I have such a discipline of actually regaining my commute, that's how I say it, I'm making my commute productive, is by listening to podcasts like this because it doesn't matter who it is, what their business is, I always come out of it with a nugget or a sprinkling of an idea. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to need ideas being fed to you constantly. And that has been huge for me personally. So I would advise you to do the same. Well, thank you, Scott. I'll pay you later for that. <laughs> no, but I guess even talking about the upstream downstream thing, even when I started the podcast, I guess I was kind of a consumer of podcasts. I realized I've been listening to podcasts for 10 plus years and there's certain things that I would just get ticked off of. And so uh, being in that role, hopefully people listening now understand why they like this podcast too. Is I just wanted something that dove in deeper or longer and like of companies that I never knew about. And then ones that would actually let the guests speak as much as they can. Although people might think that maybe I don't do that enough. But <laughs> yeah, anyone who's in that, if you love something too, and you realize that there's something wrong, whatever type of business you're in, and maybe not even business, but outside business, you could make a business about it. Because if you've been in that role and feel the pain, then I guess you can understand exactly what that consumer might need to help them make their business or their product better. Absolutely. I think that's a great lesson and takeaway that has been big for me. And I think it's, man, there are nuggets of opportunity out there if everybody just kind of takes everything through that lens. Thanks again. If there's any way for someone to reach you and say thank you for doing the interview, Scott, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah. Our website is westernwindowsystems.com. It's also great to reach me if you need a door in your house. I know a guy, <laughs> but if you go there, my contact information is listed and would be happy to talk to you. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Scott. All right. Thank you, Austin. Hey there. One special announcement for you. Are you or your company interested in reaching an audience of entrepreneurs? Our network and I are always on the lookout for businesses that we can partner with. Over the past year, we've been lucky enough to work with sponsors like Gusto, Start Engine, and Skillshare. And we've been able to help them grow their businesses by reaching our podcast audience of high-earning professionals, business founders, and successful solopreneurs. Well, over this next year, we're looking for three to five new sponsors to partner with. So if your business could benefit by reaching the thousands of entrepreneurs listening right now, and you're actually serious about sponsoring our show, then shoot me an email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. The first three listeners to place an order with us will receive a five-minute spotlight on their business that will air after one of our episodes. 
So again, if you're interested in growing your business as we grow this podcast, then shoot me a personal email at austin at millionaire-interviews.com. Talk about-